Um, like I said, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're glad that, uh, that, that we can worship together, that we can worship God in this way. Um, uh, I was saying we wanted to review, uh, you know, just some of the basic fundamentals before diving into the rest of the service about what lamenting is. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, I know when we, when we think about lament, we, we, we can sometimes think about a, a, you know, maybe it's a general tenor of sadness right, in a prayer, or maybe it's uh, a confession. A lot of times we think, oh yeah, that's like David's Psalm 51, right, like that was a lament. And, and, and while, um, while laments can have those characteristics of sadness or confession, ultimately what a lament is, is, a, is it's a biblical technical term uh, we use to describe a common form of prayer and expression to God. And it ultimately, it's us engaging God with the question, how do we interact with God when things go wrong? How do we approach God with this uh, when our lives are not, are, are incongruous, when there's dissonance between what we're experiencing and what we feel like God has promised us? Um, and so a definition that I like, a, a lament is an expression of prayer, often protest, and ultimately a request that God intervene when life is not as it should be, individually, corporately, in a country, in your home, whatever it is. It is the intersection of prayer and dissonance uh, in our lives. Uh, it's how we connect with God in this way. And typically, in, um, in Scripture, we find lament has uh, three, uh, three major sections, uh, an address, the complaint, and an expression of trust. And I'm going to review those briefly before we go into a panel discussion uh, with Travis and the MRJR team, go through an exercise to kind of help familiarize us with what a lament is. Um, so with the address, um, it usually begins with the psalmist saying, Yahweh reaching out, addressing who God is, right? And, and the point of an address um, is, to, is to ultimately invoke the covenantal framework that exists between God and his people. And so when, when uh, you know, as David, as the sons of Korah, as Asaph, as all these guys who have written these psalms over the course of history, as they reach out to God, they, they do so, they, they engage this question of what do I do? How do I engage God when things go wrong from the perspective and within the framework of his covenant? Um, and so, what does that mean? That means, what have we been promised? What expectations has God set for me and for us um, so that, that, that I can live my life by, right? So maybe it's, it's as simple as a promise in Scripture, I will be with you always. Um, the Father will give you the Holy Spirit to advocate, to comfort, and to help, Jesus said. Um, God has not given us, given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, says Paul. My peace I leave with you. I will write my law in your hearts. All these promises that we think about, that God's given to us, that he's, that he said, I will do this for you. A lament is often a, an individual or the community of God coming to God and saying, I'm not experiencing what you said. It's within a covenantal framework. It's within a framework of promises. It's not just complaining per se. It's not cynicism, which you can, it can come off to us, right, as, as people who are unfamiliar with this form, form of prayer. It's not a cynical, hey, I don't believe you, hey, I don't whatever, but it's, it's hey, God, I'm desperate for you, right? And so that's how it is within a um, within a covenantal context, that's the address, right? So we address God, we remember as we come to God as a community of faith, ultimately, God, here's who you are, here's who you've said you are, right? These are expectations that you have set, and then we come to God with our complaint, um, which, uh, which we'll get into with, with the psalm that we're about to do. Complaints can be anything from personal to corporate to uh, our country is under attack to God, you're not like, why are the righteous suffering? Even ethical, right? It, it's a myriad of, of experiences that we see the community of faith, that we see prophets and psalmists and poets and all these people bring to God and say, I need your intervention. And then the third, uh, and, then the third and final section is uh, often called an expression of trust. And it's almost all lament psalms end with this, not all of them do, uh, but it is essentially... An, an affirmation, a reaffirmation that just as God has acted in the past, and often you'll see in these expressions of trust, they'll remember something that God did. They'll name something that God did. You did this before, and we need you to do it again. I need you to do it again, and I know, I believe, God, that you hear me. 
that you see what I'm going through and that you are somebody who cares enough to act. A lament is ultimately a call to action. And so something that we wanted to do, an exercise that we wanted to go through with everyone was something that, uh, you know, we as... Uh, as, as just people in the church and, and the leaders have gone through, the MRJR has gone through, is um, an exercise really familiarizing us with what, with the language, the ethos, the, 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 the spirit behind what a lament psalm is, because again, it is very unfamiliar and can feel very uncomfortable for us. Um, so what we're going to do is, uh, Travis is going to read through Psalm 13 for us in a second. Psalm 13 is a really basic lament psalm. Um, a really short uh, lament psalm that David wrote, um, and, and is a really great example of kind of capturing the passion. So Travis is going to read this for us, and then we're going to go through verse by verse, um, engaging with this con with, with ultimately the language of lament and what what um, and and how uh, how the Holy Spirit prompted uh, the writers of Scripture to communicate to God in this way for our benefit, so that we can follow in their example. So Travis, will you uh, go on and read through that for us? Uh, I invite you to hear now from the word, Psalm 13. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Lord, how long will you not forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we've defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've, re you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Um, so... What we're going to do, uh, we'll start with verse one. Oh Lord, how long will you not forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? Um, and we're going to, with, with each of these verses, we're going to ask to, or we're going to engage two fundamental concepts. Who is David? What is he experiencing in this verse? And who is God to David? How, how is David describing God? How is David experiencing God in this verse? Um, to understand, again, to get in at the, the ethos, the passion of what these psalms are, and to encourage us to engage God in a similarly honest way. Um, and so as we go through this exercise on stage, uh, I encourage all of you to join us. Write, write, write your own answers down uh, as, uh, to these questions as we go through it verse by verse, and really ask yourself, is, 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 this, is this a way that I have ever engaged God before? Is this a way I normally speak to God? And if not, um, can I gain courage from this? So um, as we look at verse one, uh, you guys, um, how, what, how do we, what is David experiencing? How would you describe David in this verse? Um, so I'm seeing David as somebody who's really struggling. Um, and I mean, he's using the words anguish, sorrow, and struggle. Yeah. Uh, how long will you look the other way stands out to me. It's a rhetorical question, right? Like, when's this going to end? He doesn't know. But uh, the, the idea that Almighty God would look away, right? Like, I think that, that breaks a lot of our constructs of God's attention, God's directness. So that's a very personal plea, I think. Yeah, and so if we, if we put a word to that, we could say ignored. David feels ignored. David feels... What else comes to mind? Anything? Lord, how well, forget me forever. How long will you look the other way? Ignored, actively ignored, even. Maybe rejected. Rejected. Yeah, sure. What you're turning away from me. I feel rejected by you. Um, well, how about God? What, who, how is David experiencing God right now? Let's, let's take the focus off of David's experience. And who is God to David right now? In this, in, just in verse 1. God is... I think God is somebody who is supposed to be looking out for him. Hmm. Like in verse 2, when he says, how long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? You don't say that to somebody that doesn't know you. Like you don't let someone that you're unfamiliar with into this deep and intimate part of you, your soul. You say that to someone who understands you, who gets that that's part of who you are. So it's someone, there, there's an expression of intimacy there where David is saying like, you should know at the core of who I am how painful this is for me. And it, 
his needs in this moment are not being met, it sounds. Yeah. Definitely. What else is God in this verse? God is. If somebody wants to shout from the audience, you can. We didn't plan on this, but I just want to include you guys. How about delayed? How long, David says. How long? God is delayed. Hidden. Absent. Where are you? Will you hide from me forever? Right. And uh, anything else stick out from verse 2? Travis, I know we already, uh, we already got that. Janae, anything else from you? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? In verse 2, I'm seeing David as defeated. My enemy's got the upper hand on me. I've lost. I'm losing. I'm losing, God, David says, to get his attention. What else? Anything else from verse 2 from David? David might be feeling like the complexity of is God doing this to me or at least why is God not intervening in this? Yeah, what's the deal? And he doesn't say that. And again, this is not to, I don't, I don't use contemporary parlance just to, to diminish the significance of this, but really just to make it more accessible uh, in words that we might use like, what's going on? What's the deal? You know, uh, how long must I struggle with sorrow in my heart? So when I see that verse, I look at David, or I, I see a guy who is incredibly, who is struggling immensely with, with what we could call maybe, I mean, this, this is an anachronistic word, but depression, right? You know, David is, is depressed. David is is defeated, he is at the bottom. Um, Despair, yeah, he's despairing. He's literally despairing, saying, God, I need your help. I need your help. How about, all right, uh, Ian, you wanna switch to verse three? Turn and answer, we'll do three and four together. Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. What is David experiencing in these verses? I mean, I I see more anguish. Hmm. Um, I don't, the the words restore the sparkle to my eyes. I just really like the way that that's translated or that's written. If you were to put that in your own words, what would it be like? Yeah. It doesn't have to be precise, just uh, talk around it maybe. <laughs> to me, like a sparkle to my eyes, and then it's contrasted with or I will die. So I'm a little conflicted because <laughs> I think that like a sparkle in my eye feels like fully living. And he, I mean, I think he's asking God to, to to restore that for him, to, to give him a full life. Definitely. Yeah, when it says in verse four, uh, don't let my enemies gloat saying we've defeated him. If any of you have ever been through just a season of just extreme discouragement, where you feel like you're beating your head against the wall with work or with parenting or in marriage, you can relate to that because it does feel like if we're precise about like kind of how there's this spiritual side to defeat, there's a spiritual side to having Mm. a sense of like, man, I wanted this to happen with my life. I wanted this level of success. I wanted this level of, you know, uh, blessing. And to not have that expectation met, even though that's like our human framework, we're not gonna be able to see it from the Lord's eyes. uh, It feels like defeat to him. And we've all been to that place of defeat. We don't like to talk about it because we're a very success focused culture. But uh, just to be able to name that sense of being defeated, I think anyone who's reading this, either in the ancient Near East or now, can relate to that. They can relate to that sense of, of kind of getting it handed to you, if you will. Like, oof, I didn't do so good there. So um, for David to be able to present that to the Lord is really compelling. And let's, let's continue that because that's a really good thought of what, what is surprising, or what the, especially the first time we went through this, what surprises you when you think about how we pray as Christians today, how we typically engage God and, and, the society, and, and even the cultural pressures that we feel as Christians, maybe how we're supposed to engage with God? Did, is, what, what kind of contrast is there? Um. Um, yeah, this is something that um, I think I was surprised to see in the Psalms the first time we did it, um, because... Uh, I'm so familiar with Christians being very positive and maybe just bringing out um, 
of the positive things God has done for me or will do for me or the trust I have in God. But yeah. when we are going through times of anguish, um, I think that we have a harder time admitting that feeling that we're going through. Um, so I think that was, was surprising and also kind of a sense of relief, right? Mm. I don't have to put on a good face yeah, always. Definitely. I can come in anguish. As a Christian, as a fully Christian exercise of piety. Um, Ian, let's go to the last two verses as we, uh, as we wrap up here. Um, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me, or will rescue me, uh, for you Hebrew scholars out there. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. So we have a massive contrast from the first five verses to how this psalm ends. What, what's sticking out from, these, from this last section here? Who is, who, is, who is David and who is God? Let's go back to that. Who is David and who is God? I would say David is hopeful. David is hopeful. David, we just went from despair, downcast, verge of death to, but I'm hopeful, right? Right, but this is real life. Like, every one of us can wake up and feel discouraged, and every one of us can end the day going, like, you know, it turned out better than I thought. One of my challenges is, uh, and this reflects this to a degree, it's really easy for me to look at, you know, a journey of a couple of days or just, you know, even a period of time in my life and go, that was either all good or that was all bad. And what God, I think, is kind of elevating here through David's words is saying, like, look, it's actually much simpler than even that. It's that I was faithful to you. If I begin and end my day remembering the faithfulness of God, my own kind of vacillation kind of evens out a little bit because I'm not clinging to my own emotions. I'm clinging to who the Lord is. So I think there's a bit of that resolution in this. Definitely. And I think from the perspective of covenant and promise, what we see in the flow of these psalms is, again, I'm addressing you, Yahweh, my covenant God, the person I've committed to. Here's my complaint. I'm counting on you. I believe you. This isn't just a God, I'm marking you off. This is, I need you. I need you to intervene, and I believe you will. You're a faithful God. Um, so I hope that you guys uh, have taken some encouragement from this Psalm 13. Um, Exercise. Yeah, yeah. And uh, thanks, Janae. Thanks, Travis, for uh, doing the panel discussion with us. Um, yeah, thank you, George. Yeah. Um, so we are going to uh, take a little bit of transition right now and play some music. And um, as that's happening, you have There's also cards in the back of the sanctuary and tons of pens. Um, so go ahead and, and grab what you need. Um, and we encourage you to uh, right now kind of journal, write down, or just ponder um, what surprised you from this exercise that we just went through. So we all just went through. So we have some new people who joined me on the stage. Um, uh, again, I'm Janae. I'm part of the uh, MRJR, Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation group here at Bethany Eastside. And why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, I'm Ryan Winkleman. I am on the LAT team and I'm also part of the MRJR team. Uh, <clears throat> hi, I'm, uh, I'm Vincent Lee and um, I'm just a... Uh, a recent member of the uh, Ministry of Race, Justice, uh, and Reconciliation team. I've just been going to Bethany since for a few years now. Awesome, thank you. Um, so we're gonna put up on the screen the uh, official Bethany Ministry of Re Racial Recon Reconciliation <laughs> guiding statement. I'm gonna read that and then uh, Ryan will talk a little more about our uh, 
uh, group here at Eastside. So at Bethany Community Church, we believe all humans are image bearers of God, and diversity is God's very good design. Therefore, we strive to stop racism and see God's image in all people, including all variety of bodies, skin color, ethnicity, national origin, language, faith, and citizenship status. Jesus Christ is ultimately the one who breaks down dividing walls to dismantle racism. At the same time, Jesus calls and equips his followers to be his co-agents of reconciliation and justice. Toward this end, Bethany Community Church has made racial justice and reconciliation a strategic priority and established the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, or MRJR, in order to build a long-term community of reconciliation that restores broken relationships and systems. Yeah, and our team came together uh, because we saw issues in our society. We saw racism, we saw injustice, and it broke our hearts. Um, and so we spent some time together learning more about it because we realized we were really ignorant of a lot of the issues going on in the world. Um, and so through that time, we realized kind of two things. The first was we'd like to do something. Um, and, and the more we learned, the more we realized we could, we could be agents of change. And then the second thing is that this is a lot to take on. The emotion behind what we're learning, the, the heartbreak, is, is pretty intense. And so today, we're going to spend the first time doing a little bit of the learning, seeing an example um, from Vincent, who's going to share his testimony. And then we're going to spend some time lamenting uh, some, of, some of the things that aren't right in our society and thinking about how we can be agents of change. Uh, because Christ was an agent of change. He intervened so many times on behalf of those on the outside of society. Uh, if we look at John 8, we have the woman caught in adultery, right? The religious leaders, which I think is interesting, are the ones that bring her and throw her in the middle of a crowd saying, Jesus, what do you do? What should we do with this person, right? This outcast, this person who sinned, um, this person who we see as less than us. And Jesus steps in and distracts him by drawing in the sand. He, like, he doesn't stand up, he kneels down, but he really is standing up for her in that moment. And it's a great example for us, and one of many in the Bible where Christ steps in and is an upstander. How many of you are familiar with the term upstander? I'm a teacher, by the way, so I'm going to make you raise your hand. Has anyone heard that term? A few of you? Um, it's just the opposite of a bystander. The people in the crowd were standing by and watching, watching this woman suffer. And Jesus knelt down, but in that way he stood up for her. So an upstander is someone who steps in in someone's time of need. And so I'd like to invite uh, Vincent to share his story of a time where he had the choice should, he, should you remain a bystander and watch what's going on, or is he going to stand up and say something? So, Vincent, tell us your story. Well, uh, thank you, Ryan. So, uh, good morning, Bethany Eastside. Um, you know, I just want to start by saying uh, how thankful I am that our community is uh, doing this lament service and uh, how encouraged I uh, uh, feel to hear us give voice to some of these issues and cast a shadow over the lives of our uh, brothers and sisters. I think sometimes, you know, when we uh, watch and hear about racism and uh, hear about racial injustice in the media or read the latest tweet um, of uh, outrage, that although we feel the impact of these tragedies, it can feel just a little bit, we can feel just a little bit insulated from all because um, of their distance from us and, you know, because we don't have a personal connection or r relationship to those who are suffering. And this is kind of why I felt uh, compelled uh, to share my uh, own experiences uh, as a minority uh, within our community. So uh, let me just start by saying that, you know, to be honest, you know, there are times when I forget that uh, I am a minority. And uh, in retrospect, I realize that um, that is a privilege uh, that many uh, other minorities in our society don't have. Uh, Asian Americans are often called uh, and are held up both by themselves and by uh, um, others as a so-called you know, model minority because of our seemingly successful integration into American society and because we don't make waves, we don't rock the boat, we don't make demands. Um, in reality, though, uh, that model minority narrative is kind of like a gilded birdcage, I think. Uh, it blinds us 
uh, it binds those who are inside that cage by the comfort. Um, and it's used by those who are outside to justify um, not having to confront some of the injustices in our society. It kind of blinds us. So as far as my own personal story, um, that begins in Green Lake. Uh, I lived in Green Lake for many years. I started attending Bethany at Green Lake. Uh, and uh, as to be expected, over the years, I learned a lot about my neighborhood. I had my own favorite running trails, <laughs> I, um, um, uh, favorite pubs. I knew which intersections to avoid during rush hour, which is pretty important if you uh, live in that area. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants uh, near Green Lake was this Indian restaurant called the uh, Saffron Grill on North Gateway. The mango curry there is excellent, by the way. Uh, a few years ago, when I was still single, um, I was repainting my kitchen over Christmas, and I felt hungry when eat, uh, that evening, and so I headed off to the grill. Now, most of my friends were out of town visiting family over, uh, for the holidays, so I went by myself, and I took a seat at the bar uh, with all the other people uh, who were also there by themselves. Now, these days, I think it, it feels like conversation with strangers uh, at a bar is something of a dying art. Uh, we're all just on our phones, you know, surfing the web, desperate to, you know, avoid eye contact. <laughs> but uh, for some reason, uh, maybe because it was the holiday season, uh, or maybe it was just the fact that the person next to me clearly looked like he wasn't from around there, around here, uh, I felt compelled to chat with the young man uh, who was sitting next to me. So it turned out, uh, as we chatted, that he was a student from, of Middle Eastern descent uh, from the United Arab uh, Emirates. And he was studying architecture in the US, uh, in Montana, of all places. And this was his first semester here in the US. Um, and he was touring around different cities in the U.S. during the holiday break. So we uh, chatted about many things as we waited for our food, you know, about uh, whether he enjoyed the U.S. so far, uh, kind of about uh, his experience of being away from uh, his family, being very far away, and the, uh, uh, the culture shocks that he uh, was experiencing so far. So in the midst of our conversations, uh, another man sat down to the other side of my new friend. You know, at first we didn't pay him any real attention. You know, he seemed initially to just keep to himself. And uh, after a while and after a few drinks, he began um, to kind of insert himself into uh, other people's conversations and, and activities around the bar. Uh, at first he tried to engage with a couple of women at the other side of the bar who were clearly feeling uncomfortable and we're trying to ignore him. Yeah. And you know, we, we, I think we all were just trying to ignore him and carry on with our own conversation uh, and our friends. And you know, uh, even the bartender was you know, clearly uh, anxious and kind of seemed to want him to just you know, uh, pay his tab, uh, finish his, uh, his drinks, and, uh, and leave. However, the more uh, that he was ignored, the more he got angry, and the more he tried to push people's buttons. Soon, my new friend became the fixation um, of his anger and rage. He started yelling, cursing at him, stop ignoring me. It's like, you know, who do you think you are? You raghead, you terrorist. And just uh, some pretty painful and pretty uh, charged words. Now, up to this point, the man had just sort of ignored me. You know, you know, maybe he would have just kept on ignoring me. I don't know. Maybe you know, I could avoid his ire uh, just because I was that model minority, the good minority. You know, he didn't see me as uh, someone offensive. But I remember getting out of my stool and confronting him, telling him that, hey, this is my friend. We're trying to have a conversation. You need to leave us alone. Well, that did it. 
he turned all his rage toward me and said, you know, you know, why don't you go back to your country, you stinking chink? Wow, yeah. There are other words that I won't name here today, but, you know, I'm no means, you know, an expert uh, diplomat at, you know, diffusing charged situations. And maybe, looking back, there might have been a better way to talk him down from that very moment, that very point. But I think I said something to the effect of, you know, you need to get out of our faces. And then that's when he shoved me. And, you know, what happened next was a bit of a blur. I definitely wasn't ready for it. He shoved me hard enough to push me back a few feet. Um, and at that very moment, just as he was about to advance upon me again, you know, three other patrons who were sitting nearby uh, also you know, jumped out of their seat and they tackled the man. I you know, remember um, one of them quickly you know, frisking the man's leg and patting him down. I don't even, I didn't even occur to me that he could have potentially have been armed, right? And the, bar, the bartender and the, the manager um, then quickly helped the other three patrons to forcibly remove this man from the restaurant. And then after everything had settled down, you know, I think by this point, you know, my heart was beating at, you know, 150 beats a minute. <laughs> you know, my new friend and I, you know, we, we try to have some, uh, a semblance of a normal meal afterwards and try to continue our conversation. But, you know, there was no doubt that we were both shaken uh, by the events that had just transpired um, and the altercation. I felt really sad and maybe a little bit ashamed that his impression of Seattle and America was now, you know, marred by this altercation. Um, <clears throat> and um, I also felt, you know, fearful the rest of the time we sat there, too. You know, um, the man's, you know, slurs kept echoing through my head. Um, of course, wasn't the first time, wasn't the last time I had heard these things before, but, you know, just the, um, the, uh, 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 the volume and the rage of it. You know, I kept looking over my shoulder, worried that he might, you know, uh, barge back into the restaurant to settle the score. Or worse yet, that he might have been hanging around outside the restaurant, waiting to jump us um, as we left. And then, you know, kind of throughout all that, the story of another Vincent, a man named Vincent Chin, uh, from Detroit, who had been brutally murdered after an altercation at a bar the same year that I was born, uh, in the 1980s, uh, um, by several men who were angry that uh, the Japanese auto manufacturers at that time were taking away their jobs, kind of came to my mind. You know, this was an infinite uh, story of injustice um, that's well known through in the uh, Asian American community. And uh, in retrospect, uh, I realized that you know, the sphere uh, that I was feeling that night, that evening, you know, is something, it's a constant presence in the lives of minority populations. You know, um, I was looking over my shoulder that, uh, that evening uh, in fear, and other minorities have been looking over their shoulders their entire lives due to this climate. But uh, looking back, I'm also thankful that others in the room, patrons, the bartenders, you know, the servers, uh, also all stepped in and interceded uh, on our behalfs when they did. Uh, I believe that God uh, was with all of us that evening, you know, giving them uh, and give uh, myself you know, the courage to 
uh, say and do the right things and to stand up when we did. So. Thanks, Vincent. I mean, can we give Vincent a round of applause? That's just, just for... And that's the first, fourth time I've heard that story. And every single time, like, I'm just blown away by how you were Christ for that young man in that moment, right? You literally put yourself in harm's way. And, and can you walk us through, uh, you just uh, again, a little bit, like, what was your thinking as this man was being aggressive toward uh, your friend? I like to use the term friend because you'd really only known this man for an hour, maybe. Um, what was going through your head, kind of, as that, as that unfolded? Well, you know, I, I just felt that wasn't right, you know. Uh, he was a guest in our country, in our community, and uh, I wanted him to feel uh, welcome, and I want it, uh, to, um, him to see uh, the best side of our country, of our, uh, of our society. And um, so uh, here he was, kind of being accosted by, uh, by a random stranger, and I just felt the need to just uh, interject myself. Yeah, and you said you forgot about your identity. You mentioned this term model minority a few times. Um, kind of, what, can you unpack that for us? Like, what, what, why were you able to just forget? And you mentioned it a little bit in your testimony. Can, can you re review it for us? Yeah, and, you know, a, a, a lot of it has to do, you know, like um, uh, with, there's a proclivity, I think, in, uh, among um, Asian Americans to, you know, not... Um, not rock the boat, right? To keep quiet, keep your heads down, uh, and just work hard, and you know, um, uh, and be economically, you know, comfortable, um, and yeah, and not make any waves. Yeah, and there, there's like a history behind why many Asian Americans uh, act this way. Do you, can can we spend some time kind of unpacking that because? That just, that didn't happen just because it happened to be a cultural thing. That was actually a response to stuff that happened in the history of our country. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, some of that, uh, um, I, I won't necessarily say all of it, but, but some of it was definitely due to, um, you know, the, uh, the experiences that uh, Asians faced uh, first coming to the United States, you know, going all the way back to the 1840s and the gold rush and all that. Um, you know, uh, very, very early on, um, you know, this small community uh, was being blamed for uh, taking uh, the jobs of others um, and uh, kind of uh, completely all out of proportion to the actual size of the population. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, they were kind of seen as stealing people's jobs and they were uh, persecuted for it. Yeah. To, the, to the point where the U.S. government actually responded and passed some laws to ban Asians from coming to the United States, particularly Chinese people, but everyone from East Asia uh, with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that unfolded? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and just tying that back to, you know, the whole don't rock the boat and keep your heads down, right? Um, a lot of laws were passed in, in the 1870s and, the, and 1880s that kind of culminated in this uh, Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, that, and so uh, there's uh, this long-standing impression in, the, uh, in that community that you know, the legal system is stacked against you. Uh, you, know, you can't really uh, rely upon a form of health. You're not guaranteed the same rights uh, as other people. Um, and, uh, you know, the, that Chinese uh, exclusion app, um, you know, kind of was uh, the culmination of a, a lot of uh, racial prejudice that was enshrined into law uh, to the point where, you know, we weren't, uh, even if you were born in the U.S., you weren't considered uh, a citizen. You know, there was this man um, of Chinese descent, uh, his name was uh, Ark Kim, uh, was born in San Francisco. Uh, um, in the U.S. and in the uh, 1880s, and he went to, to visit uh, relatives in China. And when he tried to come back, um, they wouldn't let him uh, come back. They wouldn't let him arrive. And he kind of had to take his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and the Supreme Court said because he was born here, the 13th Amendment is the birthright citizenship amendment, for those who don't know and can't keep track of all the different amendments. Um, that the 13th Amendment superseded the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so if you were born here, you could be a citizen. But it upheld that 
if you came here as someone from East Asia, you could never be a citizen, right? And fortunately, in, in 1906, there was the San Francisco earthquake and fire, which burned all of the birth certificate records and all the citizenship records. And so many people of Chinese descent and East Asian descent that were living here said, my records were burned. Can you give me some new ones so I can be a citizen? And so they found ways around that because the, the US government was actively against it. Um, and then after that, the US um, had a whole bunch of immigration stations set up along the West Coast and interrogated Chinese people to prevent them from claiming citizenship. And we're putting kids through some really, really intense interrogations. And so for many people of Asian descent, my, my friend Elena, who's a Chinese American who grew up in Seattle, she was taught, just like what Vincent was saying, keep your head down, don't make waves, because that, those generations thought at any point the US government could come and just pull them away. And for Elena, she was born here, and she, she had this active fear from her parents and grandparents that she could be sent back to a country that she didn't even know, in a, in, try, in a place where she doesn't even speak the language. Yeah, thanks for that story. That's, yeah. uh, your friend Elena's uh, story is like really resonates with me because it, it echoes a lot of my own personal experiences in, in my life, especially when, when I was uh, in my teens and, you know, uh, was involved in a bit of uh, activism myself. You know, uh, that was the same kind of uh, uh, advice my parents would always tell me, you know, like, uh, just be a good, good student. Why do you have to get involved? Don't, you know, um, don't stick out uh, and, uh, and rock the boat. And I think, you know, that's all, you know, kind of like uh, part of a, that attitude is all part of a, this long, cultural memory that's embedded in the community. Um, and it, um, there are, uh, it's that, that um, omnipresent reminder that um, uh, people, that there are people who believe that people who look like myself don't belong in the United States. Go back to your country. And, you know, this, uh, uh, this particular incident, um, which is not, you know, the, the only uh, incident I, I've experienced in my life maybe you know, realize that you know uh, I'm frequently uh, looking over my shoulder and worry about what might happen uh, um, as well and, and you talked a little bit about uh, modern, modern minority piece we don't have time to, to explore that too much but I want to encourage everyone to kind of explore there's some great documentaries out there in terms of how this this idea developed over time and how it affects people of East Asian descent um, I want to kind of loop us back lastly um, in, into kind of final steps because Vincent, we talked at the beginning about um, how there's, there's, there's these two pieces, right? There's the piece of being frustrated with the cultural history and then there's the piece of stepping up. And I want to thank you again for being Christ and, and, and giving us this, this example of, um, of standing up. Um, and I want to move now to the lamenting of the fact that Vincent had to go through that. That is reality for many people in this country, right? We had a rise in East Asian violence as a result of the coronavirus, right? And so um, at this point, Janae, um, could you please, please lead us through um, that practice of lamenting? Yes, I will. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to just uh, use these elements of lament, address, complaint, and expression of trust. Um, to pray about the situation that we've been hearing about um, from Vincent and Ryan. So please bow your heads with me. God, um, the life and witness of Jesus, um, as we were reminded about the woman at the well and just everything Jesus did um, in the gospel shows us that you are a God um, that heals and provides for us and ultimately will drive out injustice. But right now we still experience so much racism in our, in our culture, in our country. Um, and the story that Vincent shared is unfortunately all too real every day for so many people. Um, unfortunately, we also live in a country that though it is Christian, is known as Christian, um, we have a lot more bystanders and perpetrators 
than uh, upstanders. And so we cry out to you, Lord, um, for that injustice. It's not right. But Lord, you are um, a Lord that is present. You, uh, you love your people, and um, we trust that you will step in. We trust that you will use us, your church, to heal, to provide safety, and rid our communities of injustice. We lift all these, these things to you in your name. Amen. All right. So our last piece today is um, for you to apply um, kind of just what you heard. Um, so we've got some journal prompts on the screen um, and gonna give you about five minutes to uh, write um, or if you just wanna sit and kind of um, ponder and, and meditate on them, that's fine too. So the two response questions we have for you are this. Number one, think about a time in your life where you didn't step in or step up to injustice and prejudice when you saw it happening. Invite God into this situation and consider what needs to change in your life in order to be an upstander. And then number two, what stood out to you today? Is there something you heard that is pulling on your heart? Bring that to God. So pick one or both questions um, and take some time of journaling. We're gonna give you about five minutes for this.
Thank you.